Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It is Monday, October 16th. The defueling begins this morning. The first fuel tanks at Red Hill are about to be drained. The process is expected to take until January to get more than 100 million gallons of fuel and diesel out of the massive underground steel tanks. And we talk about timeshares in tourism as Maui tries to recover from August's wildfire disaster. And we hear from a 2022 University of Hawaii graduate who moved to Israel to take a job there this summer. She is trying to make her way back to the United States following the terrorist attack. And we learn about a local group that is helping runaway teens and homeless families. The conversation starts after the headlines. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It is a monumental day in our history. This week, we are being asked to imagine a day without water, and the contamination of drinking water of military housing two years ago gives us pause for protecting our precious resource. This past Saturday, a blessing took place at a Pearl Harbor Pier in advance of the much-awaited operation to begin draining diesel and jet fuel from 80-year-old underground storage tanks. The call was for coming together for a common cause and to pray for safety and success. Ola ikavai o kanalo ae ola Ola ikavai o kuu aina e ola Ola ikavai no nakanaka e ola e ola e ola the day before joint task force red hill brought together regulators and lawmakers to mark the start of this historic operation to permanently shut down the world war ii era military installation Here's Admiral John Wade, who for an intense year and a half has led a team to make repairs and to train teams to be able to respond to an emergency, a leak or a fire, should one arise in the process of defueling all of the tanks. Defueling sets the conditions for the facility's ultimate closure. Defueling Red Hill is the right thing to do for the people of Hawaii, our military families, the environment, and national security. Over the last year, my team and I have worked collaboratively with the State of Hawaii, Department of Health, and the Environmental Protection Agency. The state and federal regulatory agencies to develop a defueling plan and then to obtain the necessary approvals and to ensure 
that we do this evolution safely and in accordance with state and federal guidelines and laws. We have been deliberate and methodical in our approach. We have planned and we have trained. We've taken exhaustive measures to reduce risk, to ensure safe operations, and we are also prepared to respond to contingencies, protect the aquifer, the environment, and the health of our personnel and the community. But let me be very, very clear. Our job is nowhere close to being done. While we're trained, we're ready and vigilant, now is the time that we must execute with precision. We've been supported by numerous Department of Defense organizations and commands. We've also worked in partnership with multiple state and local authorities, and we've consulted with fuel industry and safety experts. And we are truly grateful for the team of teams approach for this monumental task. We're equally grateful to the Hawaii congressional delegation for securing the resources to ensure that we had what we needed to do up to this point and to continue the defueling efforts. And that was Admiral John Wade thanking all who came together to make the military and our community safer. The state regulators acknowledged the many workers who played a part in the effort, which was not easy. Here's Deputy Environmental Health Director Kathleen Ho. For many people in our community, this milestone is more of a source of relief than a cause for celebration. For months, the Department of Health staff has worked diligently to validate repairs and enhancements, develop plans, and observe repairs, observe drills and exercises in preparation for defueling. After all that work, it's important for us to recognize that we've arrived at the beginning and not the end. Defueling is the first step of three non-negotiable conditions that was set forth in the Department of Health's emergency order. After defueling will come closure, permanent closure of the tanks, then finally the remediation of our aquifer to ensure that our future generations will have safe drinking water. I want to assure you that the Department of Health will uphold its obligations through this entire process to be that it be done safely and expeditiously. I wish to commend the Department of Health's small but dedicated team who has worked tirelessly late nights and weekends to uphold our Kulian. I also want to recognize the Joint Task Force for its compliance with the Department of Health's order and to EPA, our federal partner, and our partnership. Our shared responsibilities to safely and expeditiously begin defueling months earlier than initially planned is a testament to our commitment to the community. Finally, mahalo to the people of Hawaii for your active participation and support in this vitally important undertaking. I know together our voice will continue to monitor the progress and compel the military to keep its promise to ensure that we have safe drinking water for our future generations. 
at 10 this morning. Members of the EPA's community advisory group was to meet with the military. We hope to get an update later today. The military was poised to begin the process of defueling with a long list, a long checklist before draining diesel fuel first and then the lighter jet fuel. The tanker Empire State was dockside at Pearl Harbor this weekend, the first of four vessels to be tapped to disperse the fuel once the process gets fully underway. Here's Joint Task Force Red Hill spokesman Nico Menendez talking about where that fuel will go to support the Indo-Pacific forces. So there are going to be nine different lifts of fuel from from Hotel Pier at Pearl Harbor. Empire State was the first to arrive. She's going to make a number of runs. Um, There are four ships total that will be coming in to pick up fuel. Fuel will be taken to Singapore, the Philippines, California, uh, the old Campbell Industrial Park, and some of the fuel will be uh, put in the upper tank farm for use by Hickam for uh, operations. And these tankers, I mean, they would normally come here anyway. Correct. The uh, Empire State was here just a couple of weeks ago. What's historic or monumental about this is this is the first tanker that's coming in to help us defuel Red Hill. Empire State is a Jones Act tanker, uh, which means it's uh, American crewed and it's American flagship. So um, that means that she can pick up in the United States and drop off in the United States. So that's what's special about this one. So this tanker is able to take fuel from Red Hill facility and then she can move it down to the old Campbell Industrial Park foreign flagged uh, ships aren't able to do that. That was Nico Menendez, spokesman for the Joint Task Force Red Hill. The defueling is to take place 24 hours a day. Uh, This phase will wind up in January. The next step will be the permanent closure of the facility, and then there will be remediation of the aquifer and the environment, which will be handled by the Navy under the watchful eyes of the Department of Defense, federal and state regulators, and our congressional delegation. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce with a bill outlining Community Collab, October 19th at the Entrepreneur's Sandbox, in person and online. Registration at chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. Saving the art of medicine. It's not just about science, it's also about people. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a physician author about how the secret to getting better is much more than just taking a pill. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from TS Restaurants and its Legacy of Aloha Foundation, supporting the Maui community and assisting those affected by the wildfires. More about how to help by searching tsrestaurants.com Legacy of Aloha. week, students from three Lahaina schools destroyed by the fires begin returning to the classroom. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Paula Dobbin joins us for our reality check. Hi, Paula. Hi, Catherine. Yeah, so you've been boots on the ground there. and You were there uh, last week when the EPA started uh, using that additive to help try and contain the uh, toxic ash. Um, 
Yes, they started spraying soil tack last Friday to try to tamp down the the ash so that it doesn't blow around um, when they're, um, well, before the Army Corps of Engineers comes in to do the heavy um, equipment removal of of, uh, fire debris. And then there was a development this weekend uh, about the soil sampling. Yes, um, it came on the eve of when schools reopened. Uh, As you know, the Lahaina schools um, welcomed students back into the classroom today for the first time since the fire on August 8th. Um, And yesterday afternoon, the Department of Health and the Department of Education held a joint press briefing um, for journalists um, basically to inform us that they had some um, data back from the ash sampling up in Kula, and uh, that showed that there was extremely high levels of arsenic in the ash and also high levels of lead and cobalt. Um, so um, point being that you know the ash composition in Kula is likely very, very similar to what's in Lahaina, although they haven't actually conducted the ash sampling yet in Lahaina, but basically the message was, um, you know, we found these high levels of heavy metals in the ash, and uh, it's probably the same situation in Lahaina. So um, even though they have found that, you know, they they feel that right now the air monitoring shows uh, clean levels of air for the students and teachers and others to breathe. So um, the superintendent of Department of Education said that they're sticking by their decision to um, open the schools today. Um, he did mention that if you know parents need more time to absorb this new information about the heavy metals in the ash, that you know it would be fine if they uh, you know took some time. They're not going to hold it against them if if parents hold their kids back this week. So they're not going to be recording absences at least for this first week of school. And then they place these what air sensors, these monitors. Uh around the area, you know, and while it's safe now, I mean, you know, the weather could change things. Um, yes, most definitely. Um, the Department of Education has uh, updated their health and safety guidelines for Lahaina schools. So they have like a color chart, you know, green being the air is safe, yellow, more particulate matter, orange, more particulate matter, and it goes all the way up, you know, through red and purple and things like that. And they, um, you know, have different actions that they'll take depending on um, what the water, what the air quality uh, sensors read. Um, so that's all. Uh, there's a link to that in my story if you want to, you know, dig into like what exactly the schools are going to do given the air conditions. You can go to the story and click on that link, but. Um, they, they do say that they have this plan in place and um, that, you know, there's air filters at the schools that they'll turn on, you know, if the air monitoring shows that the there's more particulates in the air and, you know, if it gets really worse, they'll, um, you know, close the school or, or they'll have people shelter in place. So um, anyway, it's an evolving situation and uh, rightly so some parents are, you know, expressing concern. Others are saying that, you know, they're happy that the schools are reopened. So um, it's kind of similar to COVID in some ways, like you have to do what you think is best for your family um, based on, you know, the information that's out there. Well, and your story uh, has some really um, touching pictures of families there, you know, one mom with three girls, another mom with her three boys. And yeah, they're obviously concerned about their children's health. And so they're a little nervous. Yeah, well, those two families that I featured in the story, one is actually a teacher um, in the Hawaiian 
uh, immersion school up in Lahaina, and she's saying that she's not going to put her kids back into school in Lahaina because she feels it's not safe. And then the other woman is a a mom of three. She's a preschool teacher. Um, She lives north of Lahaina uh, in the Pili, so um, she, she feels the air up there is better, but she's also reluctant to send her kids back into school in Lahaina. So when I talked to them last week, it was really up in the air, um, you know, what was going to happen. But they're, they're amongst the group of parents that feel like DOE should not be opening these schools right now. It's just, they feel it's too unsafe. Yeah. Well, you can't blame them for being worried for their children. But thank you so much, Paula. You bet. Take care. And that was reporter Paula Dahman with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. thinking about the difference that people of all origins and backgrounds can make in our local government. The person we have in mind was born in Michigan, attended UCLA, and then moved to Waikiki in the 1950s with their husband. In 1974, she was a community leader in the Makali-Makiki area and went on to beat out an 18-year Honolulu City Council veteran to win the seat representing the Alamoana-Makiki district. She was only the second woman to be elected to the council and served for the next three and a half terms. She's also the first woman to chair the council, a body, a body boarder. Well into her 80s, she was concerned with preserving the Ka'ibi coastline and was behind the transformation of Kaka'ako's largest public green space into the 30-acre Kaka'ako Waterfront Park. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us her name? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. HPR invites you to our Sound Salon series. These in-person events are happening in November at our Atherton studio in Honolulu. Join fellow music fans as your favorite HPR hosts guide you through deep dives into their favorite tracks. Admission is $10, seating is limited. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash events. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana. Since 1929, providing fresh water to Oahu with ideas to help reduce water waste. Information booklet at protectoahuwater.org. 
Gaza is bracing for an Israeli counterattack with over a million people attempting to evacuate the area. It's been 10 days since Hamas terrorists attacked Israel. A recent University of Hawaii graduate living in Israel during the attacks recounted she awoke to the sound of rockets. Jenna Kirshner uh, talked to us last week as she tried to book a flight out to return to family in Atlanta. She just moved to Israel this summer to take a job to help set up a cheerleading program. But all that is on hold for now. Kirshner is hoping to fly out on a flight to Barcelona yesterday. She spoke to us from her apartment about 10 miles north of Tel Aviv. That day, there hadn't been any sirens like the day of the attack. When we do hear the sirens, we basically have 90 seconds to get to a bomb shelter. And then by the 90 seconds, we usually hear the rockets hitting the Iron Dome. Oh, my gosh. That's pretty crazy. So what's your status? You're trying to get out of Israel? Yes. So all the flights to America were basically canceled. And then besides like Alal, which is the major Israeli airline here, um, all airlines are canceling flights. So I was able to get an LL flight to Barcelona. Okay, and then where do you go from there? Once I arrive safely in Barcelona, I think I'm going to book a flight from Barcelona back to the United States. And where do you plan to return to? Atlanta, which is where my father lives. What happens to your job? I mean, my gosh, it just must be pretty chaotic over there. Just everything's so uncertain. Yeah, so currently I coach the first cheerleading program in the whole country. That's kind of why I moved here about three months ago. And so it's all on pause. We're going to resume Zoom practices starting next week. So just kind of conditioning and stretching the athletes over Zoom. But yeah, there's nothing to be done in person. All of our athletes, their school programs are going to start like COVID style, Zoom style um, starting next week as well. Okay. And then uh, uh, what level are we talking about? So a lot of our athletes are ages like 5 to 14, and that's the main one. And then our national team was supposed to start up in two weeks, and everyone on that team is 16 and up. However, some of them are in the military. One of my good friends who's going to be joining the team, he's right outside of Gaza right now as a sniper, so I've been checking in on him every day. So for the senior team, we're just not having practice. Knowing that you just moved over there, you know, you shared with us that this marks a month since you've become a, a citizen over there. And then to have this happen, I mean, oh, my gosh, what are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, emotionally, I'm pretty drained, traumatized. I mean, I gave up so much leaving the United States to come here. And our program was just getting started. Everyone was really excited. And it's hard because, like, the Jewish community worldwide, but especially here in Israel, everyone knows each other for the most part. So like everyone knows someone that's either in the military. Everyone knows someone that knows someone that's died, who's been kidnapped. So it's really hard just to like, you can feel it in the atmosphere, even just like walking down the streets. So you are going to try and get back to the U.S. just to be safe physically and try and resume the program online. Mm-hmm. For the meantime, as soon as it's safe to come back, I'll definitely come back like as soon as possible. You know, we're finding out that there are Hawaii residents who had family and friends that were at that um, music concert. And it's just pretty shocking to think that, you know, their loved ones are no more. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, the whole thing took us by surprise. It was on Friday night. We were celebrating some hot Torah, which is the Jewish holiday that basically um, is the conclusion of the annual cycle of Torah readings. And then we start the new Torah reading. So everyone, we were in the synagogue until like 1 a.m. dancing on the streets with our Torah, like everyone's dancing and celebrating together. 
And then, yeah, we all went home. I ended up staying at my friend's place because I was in south of Tel Aviv. So I was even closer to it than I am now. And I just remember it was 630 in the morning. And then all of a sudden we like wake up to sirens. And then my friend comes in and like pulls me off the air mattress and just basically says run. And so we run into the stairwell and all of a sudden we just hear like rockets like hitting above us. So we were all really confused. We were scared. We didn't really know what's going on because rockets don't typically make it to Tel Aviv. So then that's when we saw that they started coming over the border into Israel. And so that happened about three more times that morning where we heard the sirens to go like evacuate. But the building we were in did not have a bomb shelter. So then finally, I think it was around I want to say maybe like four o'clock, we heard the sirens and within 10 seconds of us making it to the stairwell, one hit 700 meters from us. So it was like 0.4 of a mile, not even half a mile. And the entire apartment shook. It sounded like a firework went off in the top of the building. Like I thought my eardrums were going to like explode. And I just, uh, I was just like hysterically like shaking and crying like I just, I didn't even know what to do. I was so scared. So then that's when we're like, okay, we need to find a bomb shelter. And so, yeah, we ran across the street. By the time we got across the street, the sirens started going off again. And we all just like ran in. And by like the time we closed the door, we just heard like five of them explode above us. As far as your friends over there, is everybody okay? Physically, everyone's okay that I was with at the time. But I just think mentally and emotionally, everyone's just and distraught like everyone's drained and then what about your family here in the U.S.? Yeah so they've all been worried about me I know my dad and my cousins have been trying to contact like our congressmen our senators trying to get like flights for Americans back to the U.S. but um, the last I've heard is that they will give us a flight to Europe but they're not flying anyone back to America it's Pretty much unless you're going out to volunteer or you have work or you're going to your military base, it's just you stay home. So how do you expect to navigate getting to the airport, you know, since, you know, a lot of the flights are canceled? I mean, how's that going to work? Have you worked through that? Yeah. So I have a designated taxi driver that I know is safe. That's going to drive me. My flight's at 530 in the morning. So I think I'm going to go to the airport probably 7 30 p.m. the night before. The lines are really long. I think it's three to four hours just to check in. And then, yeah, getting through security, making it to your gate. Plus, they're overbooking all the flights. So a lot of people aren't even getting on their flights. So, yeah, I'm just going to show up really early and hope I get on it. I'm just hoping, like, that no, I mean, more lives will be lost, but just as few as possible. We are approaching Shabbat tomorrow, which um, in Israel, um, Shabbat, the Sabbath is the day of rest. No one uses cars. Usually no one uses their phones. You usually walk to synagogue. You don't take any kind of transportation. So it's really hard that like on the day of rest, especially in Israel, everyone kind of has to give up that part of their religion almost just to keep fighting. So I think tomorrow's for Shabbat is going to be definitely very difficult. Uh, anything you want to say to your friends here in the islands? Uh, I just want to thank you for your all their support. I've heard from a lot of them. When I went to the University of Hawaii, I was very involved in Hillel, which is our Jewish run program. So I've heard from majority of them and everyone texts me every day to make sure I'm safe. So I really appreciate you guys. And I saw that you got your degree in psychology and peace studies. Yes. I don't know. That just kind of made my heart ache knowing in the situation that you're in now. Yeah, it's... It's really just everything's really surreal. 
Well, we wish you, you know, Godspeed and we wish you uh, just safe travels. Do be careful. Mahalo. Okay. All right. You take care. Uh, that was 2022 University of Hawaii graduate and former UH cheerleader Jenna Kirshner, who talked to us last week after frantically trying to book out of Israel. We just heard this morning that she did make it safely to Barcelona. She hopes to return to Israel. She was just granted citizenship there one month ago. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting Alan Cumming is not acting his age. The actor and entertainer performs his new cabaret show, An Evening of Story and Song, this Saturday. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com. Saving the art of medicine. It's not just about science, it's also about people. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a physician author about how the secret to getting better is much more than just taking a pill. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from ANA Ahamele, featuring classical pianist Nobuyuki Tsuji, performing at the Tom Moffat Waikiki Shell November 19th. Tickets at BlaisdellCenter.com and Ticketmaster.com. It's believed the timeshare concept was born in the 1960s at a ski resort in the French Alps. Fast forward to the present day, and the timeshare segment of the hospitality industry is credited with leading the economic recovery from the pandemic to Hurricane Iniki. We talked to Jason Gamble. He's the president and CEO of the American Resort Development Association, who had just vacationed with his family in Maui this summer. He stopped by our studios after arriving from Washington, D.C. last week. This is a difficult time, and there are so many people with so many personal ties to Lahaina, to Maui, to all of the islands. It's very emotional. For I know it's first and foremost emotional for the people who live there and people who work, and those are their communities. For those who see Hawaii as a, a place of beauty and see it for all that Hawaii has to offer and love to spend their vacation time or their time here, just like I was able to and we actually returned after honeymooning in Maui some 20 years ago. This was an opportunity for my wife and I to bring our kids to Maui and to see what we fell in love with 20 years ago. The opportunities there were great at the resort where we stayed. We had a cultural center where we took the kids every day. We learned to play ukulele. We learned the native language. We learned how to identify native species of plants, and we helped with beach cleanup. There was a lot that truly made the visit special and grew the emotional connection, along with the folks that we met who had been returning to Maui for over 20 years, and I thought that was amazing. It was a timeshare that their parents owned. They passed it down to their kids. Their kids are continuing the tradition. 
and now those people want to come back and now it's uh, opportunity for them to be able to give back or understand what took place here how to be respectful of the culture and the people who are going through so much and for them this is truly an opportunity for them to see it to enjoy Maui again and do so in a very respectful way and I think that's something that everybody has on their mind which is how do you return to a place that has suffered such a great tragedy how do you do so to support the local economy and support local families, but do so in a respectful way where you can allow them to continue their grieving process without opening up freshly made wounds. And I think that's a a difficult thing to do, but doable. You know, one of our guests said that, uh, he said all the aloha that Hawaii has given over the many decades is coming back, you know, just like your family and other families that have been coming here for many years, they're touched mm-hmm. and they want to help and they have donated, you know, mm-hmm. any way they can. And he said that was just really something to see, you know. Uh, and, and so it was just a different way of looking at tourism. It is. Yeah. And I believe you see that now with so many of the operators that are on island. You know, there are well, well over 2,000 employees that are employed in the timeshare industry there on Maui. And during this time, the the developers and the operators there have donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to either local charities, Maui Strong Foundation, United Way, local food banks, shelters. They've done employee assistance matches to make sure employees had the supplies they needed and also with housing first responders, local residents and employees at their resorts. It's an outpouring of support that you've seen through the hospitality industry, and I think you're absolutely right that aloha that has given, that the island has provided for aloha spirit for so many people over the years. It's people wanting to give back, and now they want to give back by coming and visiting, uh, by supporting local businesses, by helping however they can, and we're already hearing stories of the families returning, and some of the first questions they're asking is, how can we help? What can we do? And how how is it and look listening to locals about how should they conduct themselves when they're on their vacation yeah when we had you in last we were talking about the recovery because of the pandemic and now we're in this situation you've got this natural disaster and you know it's been two months you know there was some pushback uh, by some of the residents about it's too soon it's too soon we're still hurting and i know the governor's trying to strike a balance but it it's tough but that segment of the hospitality industry is what leads the way in this recovery. It is. But I have the chance to talk to people that work in the industry, people that are in the hospitality industry and have been for a number of years, sometimes their entire careers. They have almost a passion to serve. They connect with people. They're people who want to be around others. And a lot of their job is satisfaction in knowing they made somebody's vacation better or their experience on island a fantastic one. And those folks have been at home for a couple of months now. It's difficult not only to grieve, but when you're someone who enjoys being around others and making others happy and being around your coworkers who are your family outside of your family, your second family, for those folks, there's a desire to get back to work. And I think that comes along with the tourists coming back is what allows those people to get back to work and be able to move on and process. So everyone, it's individual for how every person grieves and how each of these and how each of these families will be able to get back to a, be in a better place. For us as a hospitality industry and the timeshare industry, 
It's true. The sooner these res- the sooner the resorts are full or have people in them, the sooner people can get back to work. And I think that's part of the grieving process as well. And how does the association communicate with its members and the owners to convey this message of please be kind during this time as you return to the islands? The association keeps in touch and we have been doing uh, the folks in the Maui Hotel Association this is a fantastic organization and, and making sure they're communicating and getting a lot of information out to not only the members of which a lot of our timeshare members are, are members there. We get a lot of information that we get from the governor's office and from the county. We also get it in many different ways, we make sure that our members are taking those messages and getting them to their owners. So it is part of that pre-arrival package. People are getting information about what to expect. And also when they get to the resort, they're being educated there about how to conduct themselves and about some of the sensitivities that they're going to encounter. It isn't great for everyone to ask, oh, how are you doing, right? How are the fires affected you? People don't want to have to relive that story over and over again. I think that our developers are doing a good job of making sure that whenever the owners are coming, that they understand the situation that the local residents are experiencing and understand best how they can play a part in making sure they're not making the situation more difficult for others. Yeah, because uh, you don't realize it. You're asking the question for the first time, but maybe, uh, you know, if it's somebody, a server at a restaurant, they may have been asked 20 times mm-hmm. that day, and it, it's hard. It's human nature to want to connect and show empathy like that, and I realize that, that that's something that it's difficult to root out for a lot of people because they want to connect. They, they, want, they don't want to seem callous and not asking anything. At the same time, it's almost the best way to go. It's almost as if we have to move on. And if somebody wants to bring it up, then fantastic. Then, then there's an opportunity to talk about it. But wait for that person to initiate it versus, uh, versus coming out yourself. And I think that's something that we've, we've heard so far. Now, this is new since this is week one of opening. And, and right now, the resorts, you know, many of these owners, and it's the same thing which happened after Hurricane Anike back in the early 1990s. When people have those reservations on the books, for timeshare owners and they already had their flights and getting to Hawaii is usually no small task for planning, especially for a family or if you're doing a family reunion or a large event. There are a lot of people who are ready to come and support. And this is something that we're gonna see over the next couple of months. Just, I think as most hotel occupancies right now are low, October will be a little bit low. However, come November and December, the expectation is that the occupancy for the timeshare resorts will be up to almost historic, like their historic levels, which is the 80 to 90 percent. In some cases, you know, the high 90s. Those resorts will be ready to welcome back that type of owner flow in just a short month or so. Right. I mean, that's high season. Mm-hmm. We're normally in a shoulder kind of season, you know. Uh, but I was walking through Waikiki just the other day, and I was amazed at how busy it was. You're having to elbow people on the <laughs> sidewalk. So it, it was really interesting to see that snapshot over here on this island. So any other projections or forecasts? I don't know. Anything else you want to share with our listeners? One thing I can say is that the Time Insurance Industry, as I mentioned before, has done quite a bit to do what it can to help the community and help the local residents during this this time of need. I'm here and I'm, I'm fortunate to be here in Honolulu 
to be part of our 19th annual golf tournament fundraising event that we do for Hawaii Pacific University every year. And this year we're also doing it to raise money for the Maui Strong Foundation. And we're really excited about the outpouring of support that we have received and the ability for us to continue to provide financial assistance because you realize these tragedies, when they happen, unfortunately, other tragedies around the world take place or around the country. And people, I won't say tend to forget, but we don't want to move on. We want to continue to make sure we support the, the, the community financially and with whatever other resources we can to make sure that we support the rebuilding efforts and help. I would say confront many of the issues that have been outstanding, workforce housing, so many other things which are there that we need to be part of the conversation and the timeshare industry is looking forward to doing that over the next several months and years. Yeah, because whether you're a snowbird from Canada Mm -hmm. or a family from Japan, folks really love to come here. They do. And they, they want to help in any way they can. Mm-hmm. And these owners who have been coming back for so many years, they truly feel like this is their second home. And they want to be part of the community. They want to experience this natural beauty like they have for so many years before. And they want to help the local residents however they can. All right. Well, Jason Gamble, thank you so much for stopping by our studios. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. And that was Jason Gamel, president and CEO of the American Resort Development Association, talking about helping the whole economy recover from the recent wildfires. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. You know, it's fascinating how much we can learn about our solar system right here on Earth, like how fossilized plants in the French Alps tell us about a huge solar storm on our planet over 13,000 years ago. The details are in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look at the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we may be able to spot ourselves in our dark skies. We're thankful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal. Should have him on the line here. Chris, welcome back. What you got this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Saturn in the southern sky after sunset. The moon this week will be approaching its first quarter phase as the week goes on, so stargazing conditions will be good for spotting those faint objects in the heavens. You know, one of the very cool things about learning about outer space stuff is sometimes you can do it right in your backyard, so to speak. And one of the things that's interesting is just the ingredient uh, comparisons and also thinking about things like plants as a record for that kind of stuff. And Chris, is that any kind of setup for your story today? (laughs) It is. It's quite remarkable what we can learn about the universe out there by studying our own planet right here. Ecologists from the Collège de France studying the fossilized remains of ancient plants in the French Alps have discovered exciting evidence of a massive solar storm that hit the Earth around 13,000 years ago. This massive 
solar event is thought to have been caused by a solar flare of hitherto unseen magnitude, and it brings into question our current short-term view of solar weather. And explain the remarkable connection to how plants, something right in our own backyard, so to speak, can be such a key thing. Yeah, it's really quite fascinating. The researchers found a spike in the element carbon-14 that is present in fossilized tree rings. Now, tree rings can be used to measure the age of a tree, and they also collect information about the environment around that tree at that time. And such high concentrations of carbon-14 can only be have caused by a solar flare. And what about other evidence, uh, Chris, to support this? Well, ice cores collected from the Greenland ice sheet show an increase in radioactive elements at exactly the same time as those found in the tree rings. We can only conclude that this was a global phenomenon, and it is believed that this event lasted for about a year. This isn't the thing that killed the dinosaurs. Oh, no, this is way more recent than that. <laughs> and seriously, we don't see events uh, like this too often. When was the last one? Well, the last recorded one is known as the Carrington event, and it occurred in 1859. It was a massive solar storm that caused the aurora borealis or northern lights to be seen as far south as cuba which is remarkable so what you're really saying is in the long-range view this sort of thing happens more often than we think exactly yeah and we have only been studying the sun in detail for about a few hundred years the blink of an eye as far as the life of the sun goes and indeed the life of planet earth so ultimately we're going to have to alter our perspective when it comes to the cycles of solar weather since much of our technology including our satellite and communications are sensitive to the tantrums of our nearest star. That or develop a way to live for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, Christopher Phillips, another fascinating stargazer, and thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. And now it's time to counsel you with the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier, we asked you about one of the first women to serve on the Honolulu City Council in the late 70s and 80s. Uh, this politician was known as someone who would take a stance on issues that were considered controversial back then. She campaigned for green spaces and was forthright in her belief that public uh, park space favored de uh, developers. She brought attention to stop development along the Kaibi coastline in East Honolulu. She actively supported those who needed assistance during the AIDS epidemic and was instrumental in creating anti-discrimination laws and introducing controversial programs such as uh, uh, testing, school education, and needle exchange to reduce the spread of HIV among intravenous drug users. So, who was this politician known uh, by all for honesty and ethics? She was Marilyn Bornhorst, the, uh, the answer to today's backyard quiz, and uh, our win Akamai winner, Carrie Taggart. Uh, you got it right. And I had the honor of, of serving as the uh, City Hall reporter when Marilyn Bornhorst uh, was there. So, yeah. An incredible lawmaker. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
program incorporating Native Hawaiian values aims to help homeless families still working through post-pandemic changes. It started at a Oahu nonprofit. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us to talk about how it helps our most vulnerable. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so w- w- tell us about this nonprofit. So this nonprofit has been around since 1970, and they've sp- specifically um, helped younger younger children who are runaways or allegedly abused and they provided shelter for them and since then this program has expanded now serving more than 70,000 um, people who are experiencing homelessness and now it's expanded outside of uh, young youth uh, women and now it's expanding from 8 to 24 year olds families included um, young boys are included for these services as well and this group is Halekipa and Halekipa actually unveiled a new program just last week on Thursday in the EVA area and so this program in EVA aims to address homelessness with children and their families the program mostly targets those who are vulnerable in post-pandemic challenges such as those who lost their jobs or lost their homes during that time and though and it's called the Ohana Resilience Services Program Facility at Halekuola and that's uh, located on Renton Road in EVA And this program offers walk-in services and a temporary shelter for two single-parent families. It also has these intervention services, counseling, and success coaching. Um, It also uh, will offer financial counseling as well to kind of help the families manage their money or even like um, to kind of get back into into a, a permanent home. And so it also offers a Kamalama parenting curriculum, which is co-authored by the nonprofit CEO, Venus Rossetti Medeiros. And what this program in particularly does, um, it weaves in Native Hawaiian values into parenting, and it's a 10-week course that's voluntary where parents can receive a certificate upon completion. Children that we're serving, we return them back home after they serve their, you know, when we're working with them and then we send them back home. But, you know, what about the ohana? What about the support we lend them? So we are able to do that now. Workforce development, we're also gonna be doing assessments here. We're gonna do mental health assessments for trauma. We're gonna provide therapy and counseling. And we're gonna be doing it with the whole family. So it's not just helping kids, but helping provide maybe parenting skills for the parents. And these are what um, folks who are running the program have been telling me that this is the core of their their mission to not only address homelessness in the youth, but to really kind of mend these um, these broken homes and to help the family and their children move forward and get into permanent housing and to fix whatever issues that that are going on internally that the public may not see. And you know, for Halekipa, the fact that they've expanded um, this program, uh, you know, it's going to have like a three-member staff and um, it's going to have um, the home that was built in. It was actually former in all-girls shelter hmm. and it was also a former plantation home. Um, when I spoke with uh, Venus Rosetti Madero, she said that um, no one wants to know what it looked like before, and so it was renovated, and when you go inside, it's actually um, more inviting. And um, 
This program so far has, um, or Halekipa has served more than 70,000 kids and families for more than half a century. So I know we were talking that this uh, nonprofit has been around for more than 50 years. And um, the program received $500,000 in grants from U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono. And it's really interesting how Maisie uh, Hirono uh, got involved. This uh, program has been supporting the young people in our community for over 50 years and 70,000 young people. And one of those young people now works for me. I am just so grateful that Holly Kipa existed. She came from the foster program and as a young person, she uh, received help from Holly Kipa to provide her with stability and the tools that she needed to reach her uh, life goals. And she now is a very valued part of my staff, and her job is to help other people. It's a nice personal story. Yeah, and I, I, I didn't know that. And the program director, Brandy Akima, gave me a walkthrough into the home. And so it for the two single families, they will have their own private bedrooms and own private baths. Uh, the only thing that they will share is a common kitchen area and um, a toy area. And in the living room, there's about a 12-foot mural painted by John Prime Hina. The promise of the rainbow here, which is very significant in, in uh, indigenous practices as a you know symbol of the promise and, and, and then we also have here as a featured kind of lay weaving through the rainbow here is, is the um, Aali'i, which is a notable um, Hawaiian flower used in haku, but in this case, uh, you know, it's a symbol of resilience, the resilience of families and of people and really of this community. So families can stay in the shelter for up to 90 days and then transition to permanent housing, but they can also extend their stay um, depending on the circumstances. And we know that um, Oahu's point in time count shows that homelessness has increased slightly. And in the, from Eva Beach to Kapolei, there's about 300 people experiencing homelessness so far, and some have been experiencing homelessness for years. Yeah, so it's good they've got this uh, program to, to help those families. But thank you so much, Cassie. We've been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio. You can read more about this story on hawaiipublicradio.org. out of time now, but tomorrow we plan to get the latest on a former Hawaii resident who was on a humanitarian mission in the Middle East, and now she's trying to get out of Gaza into Egypt. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Give us some feedback. You can find the conversation segments on our website or anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.